Hello and welcome to episode four of Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here in Windermere today in the cafe at Booths with illustrator, author and fell walker Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. Great to be with you, David. We have lovely weather today, Mark. Well, what a fabulous day. Ah, I can't believe it. Previous three days... Uh, we've been out doing Country's Stride, have been good, but this is absolutely amazing. So far on Country Stride, Mark, we haven't talked a great deal about that great icon of Lake District fell walking, Alfred Wainwright. But today we're dedicating an entire episode to him and his work. Talk us through the walk you have planned for us. Well, Alfred Wainwright was an inspiration to many people, not least myself. He was a great one for using public transport and exploring from the bus. And we're gonna do the same. We're going up onto Orest Head, directly above the station where we are now, and walking on to Troutbeck and uh, down to Brockhole. But in the midpoint, we'll get on a bus and head off south and visit uh, Andrew Nicholl, who was for the last nine years of Wainwright's life, the printing manager at Westmoreland Gazette. And it was he specifically who brought Wainwright out of the shadows and made him into the public figure we know today. But he did it very sympathetically and very aware of the foibles of a man, but also his great qualities and talents. But also during the course of the walk, I'm walking with Chris Butterfield, who has studied Wainwright and his printing and his artwork. And we're gonna share the pleasure in the absolutely exquisite work and exquisite talents of Alfred Wainwright. Shall we go and find Chris? Our rendezvous was by the bus stop at Windermere Station, so it's just round the corner. Right, well, I've arrived at Windermere Station at the bus stop. And I'm in the company of Chris Butterfield. Great to see you, Chris. Great to see you, Mark. How are you doing? Now, I'd like to know a little bit about you. Yeah, well, I've only kind of been interested in Wainwright for a few short years, uh, primarily. And I used to do long-distance walks. In 2013, I did the Pen and Way. In 2015, I completed the Coast to Coast. It was completing the Coast to Coast that got me inspired with Wainwright, you know, inspired me to learn more about how we devise a route. And from there, I found about the guidebooks to uh, Leyland Fells. I purchased all the books and studied them deeply. I didn't read them, I studied them. Um, and I, I was very intrigued in how we designed the books and, and how we put the books together uh, and his art style and his writing style. And that got me wanting to know more about the man himself. Uh, how he, you know, growing up from Blackburn and moving to, eventually moving to the Lake District. This is the very bus stop where Alfred Wainwright came in 1930, I believe. You got a bit of a feel for that. Yeah, d- definitely 1930, yeah, at the age of 23. Now, he got here... And this was his first uh, impression of what the Lake District was all about. I read in his book, The Ex-Fell Wanderer, a little paragraph. He says, alighting from the bus, our first objective, according to my itinerary, was Orest Head, a recommended viewpoint nearby. Our way led up a lane amongst lovely trees passing large houses that seemed to me like castles with gardens fragrant with flowers. I thought how wonderful to have a house with a garden. The sun was shining, the birds were singing. We went on climbing steadily under a canopy of foliage, the path becoming rougher. And then, quite suddenly, we emerged from the shadows of the trees and there was a bare headland. And as though a curtain was dramatically torn aside, beheld a truly magnificent view. Anyway, this gives you the sense that he had come upon something very special and it became something very special to his life. And what I want to do today is to reenact that sensation and it gives us a great opportunity to see that landscape that he was overwhelmed with on that magical day. So we'll head off now, we're at Chris. Well, we crossed the A591, very busy road leading into the heart of the Lake District, and we passed the sign to Orest Head, 
and we're starting up a nice, quiet little suburban road rising up the hill. Chris, you've been up here several times, inspired by Wainwright. You've started collecting his books and memorabilia. What drew you into that intrigue? Reading the guidebooks, you know, really got me hooked on his style of writing and, and his art. Uh, it was extremely unique. I'd never seen anything like it before. Mm. Say that, you know, book one now is 63 years old. I still don't think he's been better today. Yeah. It was almost two years. <laughs> in fact, it was two years ago in September um, how it started. Well, Hunter Davis was moving down to London. He was selling his house in the Lake District, moving down to London, and there were an auction in um, Cockermouth at Mitchell's, and I decided to take a look. And there were some From? fascinating items there. So, uh, we've done a few items, 14 items in total, yeah. and I won 10 of them. Some really rare, rare stuff. You were brave. Oh, definitely. Financially brave, anyway. Oh, very financially brave, and I'm still paying the price. <laughs> um, but yeah, it kind of snowballed from there, and I was just, you know, I got some letters, a couple of signed books. Um, I got the very first advertisement from, uh, from Cumbria Magazine from 1955. Uh, I got some of the letters that were in the Wainwright Letters book from Hunter Davis. Yes. Uh, and it kind of, this got me intrigued to even find out even more. So um, I, I kind of hunted down the people who actually knew Wayne and worked with him. I've knocked on doors, I've hounded people, uh, and the so <laughs> you know, from Richard Elsa, Andrew Nicholl, Eric Robson, Ron Scholes, right. uh, Derek Brabs, and they've provided me with unique stories, uh, photographs, memorabilia. Um, these, are, these are a range of people who wouldn't necessarily have linked together, but for you, you're the glue. Yeah, I managed to get them all together. Mm -hmm. And also there's been some people that are not well known, mm -hmm. who've actually had my memorabilia, and they've learned of my search for wearing my items, and they've actually come to me yeah. and provided me with some unique letters, items, books. Uh, and this has uh, ultimately led to me owning original Wainwright manuscript. But the interesting thing, I think, is that you're not just doing it for yourself. You're no. doing it with a much more community uh, perspective on, the, on what Wainwright was all about. Oh, of course, yeah. And it's also to introduce Wainwright and also uh, the Fells to the, to the next generation. Yes. Uh, and what inspired Wainwright, I'm hoping to get other people to be inspired by the same things yes, uh, to carry on. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, we'll climb up Orest Head and see how far we get today. Well, we've come round the corner and we're very much into foliage. There's a great canopy of trees here. And Wainwright mentioned that. And he also mentions about the houses that are adjacent to the track here, uh, which have large gardens. Now, modern suburban houses most have some kind of a garden, but Wainwright's background, he came from a, a very industrial town where gardens were unheard of. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was very little gardens, you know, uh, with, with toilets in, and then they're all terraced houses, so very little greenery. Uh, opposite where I lived, there, there were uh, brickworks, which is now gone. So it wasn't used to this kind of scenery. And, no. um So coming in and seeing this beautiful countryside really blew me away, you know. Um, it was destined for the mills, and um, mm. after seeing this, he really wanted to break away from that. Absolutely. Yeah. The only, thing, only green space he knew was um, Ewood Park. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and he was passionate about Blackburn Rovers. He became a rover himself. He certainly did. Let's rove on. You can tell autumn has come on. It's come earlier this year, but boy, oh boy, the sun's dancing through the canopy of beech trees above my head. It's very calm here. Well, this is one of the joys of walking in the Lake District. You can get away from the crowds very quickly, even at a very popular spot like this. And look at this leaf litter. Wow, we've made it, Chris. We're at the top of Orest Head. Finally. Fabulous spot, isn't it, eh? We are blessed with beautiful blue sky and a grand array of range upon range of mountains. But you come over this bald, rocky, volcanic summit and in front of us, a clear, almost perfectly clear blue sky. And you can see from the Coniston Fells, the Langdale Fells, Fairfield, Red Screes, Illbell, up at Troutbeck. And, and you can actually see the village of Troutbeck, which is where we're heading uh, beyond the Far Orest. 
this magically impacted on AW, didn't it? Oh, coming from the industrial background, when Wainwright first came here, 23 years old, you know, this was a promised land. He must have been blown away by it. I mean, oh. you can understand why, after seeing this view, he wanted to put his roots into this part of the country. It was actually the following year he came back. He actually planned to take in every single viewpoint and every single fell um, within five or six day hike. And he planned it with several friends. Yeah. Um, ultimately, a bit off more than he could chew. Yeah, did, ambitious. It, yeah, very ambitious. Um, but he did complete most of it. But you can see, actually, when you look at this view now, you think, oh, I could do that in a week. And when he actually planned it and did it and didn't quite make it, that spurred him to believe there was riches beyond Everest here that he wanted to be able to grasp, but he knew it would take time. Definitely, yeah. In fact, it wasn't until 1941 that left Blackburn and right. finally moved into Kendall. So it was a 10-year period, ten -year where, period where the magic yeah, grew yeah, on him. Yeah. In that year, there were many visits and also visits to Scotland as well, but this is where he grew to love the place. People had tended to see the fells as the Cumbrian mountains, but he started to squeeze in on them, so he knew them as individual personalities. Instead of just being like the crowd at Ewood Park, yeah, it yeah. was the players on the pitch and those are all the star performers out there. Anyway, we're going to plod on. Right, I've got a young couple <laughs> sitting on a bench looking due north and I've got a great puddle in front of me but it has been raining lately. Now, where do you come from? Nottingham. Nottingham. Now, have you ever, ever been to Orest Head before? No, this is the first time up here. Uh, and where are you staying? Keswick. We've been to Keswick many times. Oh, yes. So, we've been Walla Crag and... Catbells. Catbells. Castle Crag and yeah, things like that. Yes. So, this is sort of the qu equivalent down in this area. Yeah. But this summit actually does give you a lot, doesn't it? Yes, I'm surprising, really. What's the name you associate with this hill? John, you could do this one. Wainwright. Wainwright. Yes. <laughs> yes, and he lived in uh, Kendall, didn't he? And he came from Blackburn. And he was inspired by this view, and you can see why, can't you, yes. really? Yes, definitely. Yeah, uh, what, what hills catch your eye from here? Oh, no. Old Man of Coniston, somewhere, somewhere that way. Somewhere that way. Yes, that's that over way. there. I did that, yes. I walked that many years ago. Yes. And is it Scorfell Pike? Yeah, Scorfell Pike, just through the gap there, above all three tongues, just, just to the left of Bowfell. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, uh, I'm pleased you've come and... Uh, Especially on a clear day like this. Yeah. Yeah, well, obviously, <laughs> you've uh, organised it perfectly. Yes, just well, hope it lasts. <laughs> yep. Well, enjoy your Greg's uh, bab. Yes. <laughs> sausage roll. Not, oh, Good old brilliant. sausage roll. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Great to see you girls. How many girls are you together? Six. 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 So where are you from? <laughs> Preston. 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 Yeah. Right, right. This is the north end of Preston. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is a famous viewpoint, Orest Head. Do you associate the, the place with anybody's name? No. The, uh, I read something online. This is the first a mountaineer walked up here, didn't he? Yeah, no. A man from Blackburn. What was his name? I don't know. Right. I did read it online this morning, right. though. Well, at least, you, at least you got to that point. <laughs> It was Alfred Wainwright. Oh. Does that ring a bell to anybody? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the fells are known as Wainwrights and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But what spurred you to choose this particular hill today? It wasn't too far. It was manageable. Manageable. <laughs> uh, yeah, and what weather you've brought us. Yeah. I know, it's gorgeous. Yeah, and feel the warmth bouncing off the volcanic rock. Do you know any of the things, hills that you're looking at? No. Would you like to know them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll quickly tell you, like okay. Langdale Pike, so that little cluster there, mm -hmm. and Bowfell and Crinkle Crags, that's Great Langdale. And right in the gap, in, through the gap, right in the middle, is Scorfell Pike. Ah. Are we wondering where that was? You're looking right at the heart of the Lake District there. And that fell over there, that boring one there, Old Scarf, is more or less the centre of the Lake District National Park. So how long are you up here? Till just, Sunday, just yeah, the weekend. Just the weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you normally come as a group? Yes. 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 <laughs> You're great friends from uh, not work colleagues. No, no from no, high, school. high school. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. Well, Preston's got great virtues, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I bumped into a lovely couple who've just come off Orest Head. What spurred you to climb Orest Head? Uh, somebody told me about it a couple of years ago. So I've come up this weekend for my 60th birthday. 60th birthday. Thought we'd have a walk up, been right. there, lovely views. 
know where I'm going to walk back down and might go and have a, have a, pint. Have a pint or two. Right, and fabulous. That'll be, that'll well, you've soaked up the views. You deserve all the pleasure you can get from a Absolutely special day. Right. Yeah, uh, you, do you climb hills normally? Is that something you've... We do walking. Yeah. We, we do a yeah, lot of walking, walk. but we haven't, this is the first time we've walked up this far. Of course, for people coming to the Lake District, Orris Head has, has traditionally been a very special place. Yeah. And did you get that sense when you got up there that it was yeah. special? Yeah, yeah, you can tell everybody in George when they're there. It's yes. like I said, the views are amazing. Yeah, it's just the amazing. views, isn't it? Because yeah. you can see right over to Markham that way, isn't it? Yep. And, um, I'm not quite sure what's right. Amble side, is it? That, that yeah, way? Yeah. That's right. Way. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's magical because under your feet is rock and you really feel you're in somewhere really volcanic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and it's a mesmerising view, so... It's Nature great, it's great, best, yeah. great it? to share it, though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. lovely. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, okay. for, nice thanks a lot. Nice to meet you. Enjoy. Lovely listening to the rooks swirling round in the gentle breeze. It's a wonderful spot, this. This is in the country east of Orest Head, between Troutbeck Bridge and Ings. A pastoral landscape of lovely fields, all bounded by moss-covered stone walls with little copses of sycamore and oak. And at this time of year, all changing colour. And I'm just past a wonderful old barn a Westmoreland bank barn where the cartway went up in the middle of it. It looks like there's a couple of extensions that are now gone. You can see the old roof line built into the wall. And behind it, there's the farmhouse with its typical round chimney pots. There's a lovely old rusty corrugated barn roof there as well. In the background, you can see the high fells. I'm looking towards Weatherlam and Coniston Old Man. just climbed over a wall style in the corner of the field and I've come to this great parkland ash tree. Great ranging branches and at the base honey fungus. And you've got a majestic view here, haven't we, Chris? Um, absolutely spectacular. You can understand why Wainwright loved it. Now, you've got an alchemy of a view here. What was the alchemy about Wainwright? What made him so special, do you think? Well, it wasn't just one thing, really. It was a mixture of different ingredients that intrigued me, that drew me towards him. It was his writing style. Um, it was also his, his, his drawings. In fact, you know, his art style and, and the way he justified his, his every page. It's like, that was, you know, how, how did he do that? It was such a perfectionist, like the first 100 pages, he just threw away. I wonder how much time he spent on them before he actually decided to justify each page. And not only that, not only his work, but himself, you know, he was a very enigmatic man and he never gave his self away freely. What you're doing is treasure trove for future generations. Of course, yeah. And it's almost inadvertent that you've come upon this process. I wonder, will the next generation find what you're discovering worthy and, and of great merit? I've only been seeking out Wainwright in the last sort of two or three years seriously. And I find a lot of people coming my way uh, really appreciative of the knowledge that I've brought forward that I found. And, I find, and more and more every day, people coming to me saying, I didn't know this about, I get emails and messages coming through on a daily basis saying, I didn't know that about Wainwright. So, and also speaking to other people, um, Richard Elf, for example, he's noticed that the following from Wainwright growing again. Mm. Um, it has its lulls and its peaks. Yes. Um, we're sort of coming out of a lull at the moment. You know, a few years ago, there was a bit of a dip in Wainwright where things weren't selling, but now it's kind of rising again. New generations coming out, discovering the Lake District and discovering Wainwright. And we all have to play our part in, in, in bringing Wainwright to the next generation. Yeah. So it's not just about a cluster of fells that happen to be called Wainwrights. And I think that's, that's the one side I would wish was downpedaled and we were to go back to the man himself. Yeah, I think yeah. what you're doing is critical in that. Keep him alive. Chris, when you think about it, Wainwright, from his time he first climbed Orest Head to his demise in the early 90s, um, 
When do you think was his purple patch? When did he, from your surveys of his work, where, where was he at his ultimate expression? I think he was at his peak uh, an artist in, during the 1940s, early 40s. As fantastic as the drawings are in the original guidebooks, which they are fantastic, and obviously you can see in the later sketchbooks, you see that um, degrading slight in the late 70s to the early 80s. Mm. I always thought the guidebooks were the pinnacle of his mm. artistic ability, but uh, it was only a few months ago I saw about 30 or 40 original drawings that privately owned uh, that Wainwright did shortly after moving to Kendall. He moved to Kendall in 1941, He'd only been there a couple of years and he started drawing all the landscape, Kendall and, and, and mm. like local areas around Kendall and, and the Lake District and beautiful meadows and trees and rivers and, and especially the architecture as well. These were all sort of done in the early 40s uh, during the war period. Right. And yeah. the detail is phenomenal. You have to look up to the picture and into it to see the fine pen lines. They almost look like a negative. The, the finesse in the, it. Oh, yes. I, I remember is. seeing in his house, above his bed, he had... Uh, a view of Bofell from Leetan House. So it had that meticulous view there. Uh, and on the stairs going up, there was Ray Castle. And that was absolutely exquisite. Because he set himself this crazy course to do all the fells, he had to use far more of his skills and he couldn't devote himself in the same meticulous way as he did to when he was purely as an artist. He was the product of a period and he was Victorian in his artistic prowess. Any excuse to do a drawing. Absolutely. We'll draw a close for a moment. We come down the quiet country road, off from far Orest, and uh, coming down into the Troutbeck Valley via Fuse Thwaite Yate. I love that name. Fuse is cow house, Thwaite is clearing, Yate is gate. Interesting little spot. And we're coming down, you see the main road ahead of us, which is the main road from Troutbeck Bridge uh, over Kirkston to Ellswater, Patterdale. And then above the main road is the village of Troutbeck itself. Well, we've just hit the road, the valley road, and uh, we've come to a bus stop. Now, my plan is that we're now going to get on the bus and get to Kendall to visit Andrew Nicholl so that Chris and I are going to have a conversation with Andrew and then we're, I'm going to come back on the bus and complete the walk up to Troutbeck and on down towards Brockhole. All aboard. Well, we got the bus... Chris, we managed to circumnavigate Kendall to find Andrew's home, <laughs> tucked away in the hill with a fabulous view. Yeah. And I'm now, anyway, in the company of Andrew and Bernice Nicholl uh, in their lovely home, and I'm looking out into the meadow with sheep. It's wonderful for you to invite us here, Andrew. You're welcome. You worked for the Westman Gazette for how yeah. many years, Andrew? From 1969 until I retired in 1992. That's about 23 years. 23 years. Yeah. Interesting that, because 23 cropped up twice now, because I mentioned that Alfred Wainwright first came to the Lake District when he was 23. Mm -hmm. I was 23 when I first met Wainwright. Oh. That's a while ago now. You have met him. Oh, yes, I oh. knew him very well. I used to stay with him and Betty. Did you? At 38 Kendall Green. Oh, right. Back in the early 1970s. How would you describe him, his personality and his abilities? It's difficult to say he's a genius, but he's the nearest I've ever known as a genius, simply from his justification by hand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I first come to the Gazette, I had nothing to do with general printing. I was simply responsible for the newspaper side of the production. But these pages, these sheets of pages, waiting to be bound in the guidebooks, were lying here, there and everywhere. And I took it to begin with, it was a special typeface that had made, and one that I'd never heard or seen, heard of or seen before, and asked one chap what it was, what typeface was called. And he said it wasn't a typeface, it was done by hand. Well, I took that with a pinch of salt. At a later stage, I asked the managing director about it, 
And he said, no, he does that by hand, you see. Yes. But after I'd been at the Gazette, what, three years or so, I was asked to take over the production of the general printing and book publishing as well. And after a month or two, I was asked to bring something for Harry Firth, the printing and publishing manager, out of the filing cabinet in the cellar. And in the filing cabinet was the original pages and drawings for the guidebooks. It was true, they were done by hand. I found it hard to believe. And they were faithfully 100% printed. They weren't enlarged or reduced. No, 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 they were so same you... size. They were the, the originals. There were the pencil marks yeah. where he had to end Reg a line yes. and, and start a line, top and bottom. So he got the exact size on every individual pages. And I, I, even I hadn't realised up to what the mid-1980s, in conversation with him, it came out that there wasn't a hyphen in any of his books. So not only did he justify, he never split a word in all those pages. Yes. Now, if that isn't unique, <laughs> I still find it hard to understand how he did it. And one day I said to him, how did you justify it each end? Do you understand the difficulties of doing this? In the printing trade, it's very frustrating typesetting, having to space some words by hand. In, on some occasions, you can get away with using a hyphen, but you do it by hand and you never use hyphens. And he said, no, he didn't like hyphens, but he said, sometimes I had to change a word. I'll look at a line before I start, and sometimes I have to make the, the characters wider than a line if it's going to be tight, where I've got to keep them narrow and I can put more space between the words. But when you think about it, to know at the beginning of a line how wide to make each letter. Mm. Quite staggering. Absolutely genius. So when you took over Harry Firth in 1982, I believe that the Gazette uh, was sort of losing money at that time. What, what convinced you that Wainwright was the answer to the lost revenue I was looking for a way to replace the revenue because we'd, at a higher level, it had been decided that we get out of magazine printing. But the revenue from the magazine printing was about 30% of the total turnover. And there were 35 jobs at stake. Mm. Westminster Press had only acquired general printing businesses when they're taking over newspapers, they weren't really general printing people, but they were content so long as they got a return on the investment. Once a business had lost money for three or four years, usually they were closed down. We lost a considerable amount of money in 1981, about £43,000, which in today's money is probably equal to something like a quarter of a million. So there was only another couple of years, I would say, to go if we didn't get it back into the black. And I wondered about starting group offices. We only had one rep. wondered about starting extra reps. But whichever method came to mind, it meant increasing costs with no guarantee that we'd increase the profit. But I had this background thing about Wainwright. Uh, but then you would need publicity, and he was averse to publicity. He didn't like journalists, he didn't like mixing with people. He was a very private individual through and through. And I took a telephone call from someone in London who had bought a guidebook that was faulty, it had one section repeated and one section missing. Could he have a replacement? And I said yes, and he was going to send it. But I said, no, you hang on to it, we'll send you a replacement in a jiffy bag with a label inside, readdress to send your faulty copy back to the Gazette, which we did. 
Um, a couple of days later, this chap rang and said, thank you very much. I didn't think it would be as easy as that. That was quick. Um, I'll post the other copy back today. And somewhere in the conversation, he realised I'd met Wainwright. And I couldn't get him off the telephone. <laughs> he was on at least half an hour. And to get him off the telephone, I had to say, look, if ever you're in Kendall, don't hesitate. We're right in the town centre next door to Marks and Spencer's. Come into the shop and ask for me. I'll take you on a tour of the works and let you see the books being printed and bound. And managed to get him off the phone. I had a thousand things to see to. Never thought any more about it. Next day, just before lunch, I rang from the shop. Uh, Mr. So-and-so here to see you, Mr. Nicholl. <laughs> oh, I thought, no, um, just coincidence. But asked them to bring him along and brought him along. It was this chap who had been on the phone the day before. And I apologised. I said, I'm sorry. I had no idea you were coming up. I thought maybe you'd be coming up for your holidays or something in the summer. Well, I wasn't, he says, but... When you said I could have a look around and see the books being printed, they said I couldn't wait until the summer. I rang my boss at home and got the day off, and he travelled up by train from London specially to see the books being printed and bound that he could have seen when he was coming up anywhere in the summer. And then, it was only a matter of weeks later, I called from London, again from London, Someone wanted to buy a Wainwright original drawing. And I said, well, that's a bit of a waiting list. Um, if you'd like to leave me your name and telephone number as one becomes available, I'll get in touch, but it could be a long way. There's only odd ones. This chap left his name and telephone number, and it was only a month or two later when a collection became available and there were, he wanted three originally but there was one available and I rang him and said what it was and how much and he, yes he would have it. I said well don't you want to see it first and he said no so long as you are sure that it's an original drawing, original Wainwright drawing I'll have it. And I said oh I said when do you come up to Kendall? Because I wouldn't send this. I wouldn't risk this in the post. Uh, oh, no, no, don't put it in the post. I'll call, oh, hang on, he says. I've got to go to Hong Kong tomorrow, and I'm going to be away for a week. Um, I said, that's all right. I'll put it in the safe until you can come up. But warn me when you're coming to make sure I'm going to be here. Left it at that. Next morning, same thing happened. Just before lunch, called from the shop. Uh, Mr. So-and-so here to see you, Mr. Nicholl. They brought him along from the shop. He introduced himself. I said, I thought you were going to Hong Kong. He said, well, I was. But he said, I couldn't wait for a week to get hold of an original. I was only going to sack somebody, so we'll give him another week. <laughs> <laughs> it turned out he was a director of an international bank. Well, <laughs> Incredible. So you, so you realise you've got mm. something That's of great value. That convinced me I was right. He was something special. He was a god to the fell walkers. And these are the instances that made me realise this was the way, if I could persuade the AW to do publicity... That's another story. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to persuade now, him. Oh, gosh. He now was averse to it. You, you managed to get him up to Desert Island Discs, or, or were you involved mm. in some way on that? Oh, yes. It was <laughs> yeah. 30 years ago. 30 years ago yeah. now. Yeah, and I think it's it took the best part of two years to persuade him. Wow. The original presenter, Roy, Roy Plumley. Plumley. There was somebody working behind the scenes, I can't recall his name, who would telephone and make the arrangements for the interview. And and he telephoned and I said, well, I'll ask him, but I very much doubt that he hates publicity. But because he's not 
it's not like television where he can't be seen. I said, we'll, we'll see anyway, but I don't expect me to ring you straight, but I must get him in the right frame of mind. Because if he refuses, that's it. He won't be able to change his mind. And after a few weeks, you know, he wasn't interested. He wouldn't hear of it. So I just dropped it and went on with things. And Parkinson took over. And I thought he would have been a Parkinson fan, but no, he didn't like Parkinson, so I had to drop it again. But Parkinson didn't do it for very long, and so Lolly took over. And she'd only been doing it a week or two when A.W. said something favourable about Sue Lawley. Mm. So I rang the number that Roy Plomley's background man had given me. And yes, they discussed Wainwright. She discussed Wainwright with um, Sue Lawley. She said they were very keen to have him if it was possible. I said, well, I can't promise anything, but leave it with me. And the next day, I was having a sandwich in the office at lunchtime, thinking about this, how, what was the best way? The only thing I could think of, he loved ice cream, he loved the Yorkshire Dales. If we went to Manchester for the interview, oh, and he'd said a week or two earlier, he'd never been on the M62. And I said, well, you were lucky. I've been on it a few times. I always get stuck in traffic. I thought, you know, it, it wasn't much of a reason to get him to do Desert Island Discs. Ride right on the M62, <laughs> go as far as, cut through Bradford, go to Harry Ramsden's, have some fish and chips. Brilliant. He was a keen fish and chip man. Um, and then come back through the deal, stop somewhere and have an ice cream, make a day of it but it didn't sound very convincing to me. I left the office, jumped in the car, went up to his house, which was only a half a mile or so away, knocked at the door, and it opened like the old films, very, very slowly. Hello, I wasn't expecting you today. No, I said, have you got a minute? I come in, he says. I followed him in. You said the other day about such and such about Sue Lawley. If you agree to do Desert Island Discs, we could go down to Manchester for the interview, go along the M62. You said you'd never been on the M62. Cut through Bradford, go to Harry Rampton's, have some fish and chips, and then come back through the Dale, stop somewhere and have an ice cream. Aye, all right, he says. Just like that. And then there was a big snark. I got back to the office, rang Jillian Hush, success, he's agreed to it. And how, what, what did he agree to? I said, well, come down on the M62, cut through Bradford. Oh, she says, no, all the interviews for Desert Island Discs are done in London. <laughs> oh. Shot down in flames. Oh, God. <laughs> Couldn't believe it. He was never going to go to London. <laughs> I would never have gotten back to London. But after a few seconds, she said, just hold on a minute. Sue's husband is our office manager. She's never seen his office. She said, I'll ring Sue. She'll probably take the opportunity to come up here and see the office and do the interview. And then she rang back and said, yes, that's OK. Uh, but it was so unpredictable. Mm. On one occasion, when I went up, Mrs Wainwright had some friends in for coffee. It was mid-morning, and um, they were sitting at the other side of the room for, from where we used to sit uh, to open the post and deal with matters. And um, I, I just said good morning and sat down and started to discuss the post when A.W. said, will you hang on a minute till we get some privacy? These two will be going in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and they were open out with this minute. 
There was no consideration for Mrs. Wainwright's friends. Oh. But yeah. he could be charming. Could be charming, absolutely. Another occasion when I was in the Yorkshire Dales, he never passed the little chef. We always had to stop. Oh, yeah, I've been into mm. little chefs with him myself. Yeah. Yeah. I used to have the pancakes, and AW used to have the same. But we were in there this one day, and there was another couple in, the only other people in there. And I had a young boy with them, about 12-year-old. And they sent the little boy over to get Mr. Wainwright's autograph. And he was grand with his little lad. Ah, <laughs> lovely. Mm. I, I got up and went out of the way and the, left them just for a few minutes. And he said, I heard them say to the little boy, how did you know it was me? <laughs> the halo over his head, yeah, obviously. But the little boy got the autograph and went back to his parents. <laughs> that little boy will be a little bit, quite a young man now. I certainly will be. He could be a, a very likable character when he was in that frame of mind. Mm. Yeah. What was Wainwright like away from the work arena? I know you went to holiday in uh, with Wainwright. I can't think of anyone who could go into so much detail, but that, that week in Scotland was spent, one day in particular, we were in Westeros, and the, the evening before we went, he said, tomorrow morning we'll leave here at quarter to eight, and we'll go from here to so-and-so, to so-and-so, to so-and-so, and we'll go into Westeros, and he mentioned all the points of interest and he said, we should be back here for five and then we'll be able to have our dinner at the club. We ate at the working men's club each most evenings. The food was very reasonable in price, which was important to W and it was good food as well. It had been a red hot day when we got in I went to the bar to order drinks. A.W. always had a half shandy, never anything else. Bernice had a half shandy and Mrs. Wainwright, I can't remember what she had. And I would normally have had a pint shandy, but it had been a long day. I needed a drink. I had a pint of beer. You wouldn't have believed the fussy kicked up. You would have thought I'd bought a gallon. <laughs> when I put a pint down, he looked at us and he said, a pint. I said, it's all right for you, we're sitting in the passenger seat. I've been driving for about eight hours. <laughs> I said, I've earned this, I'm going to enjoy it. But three or four times, even before we or we'd ordered food, he leaned forward and said, a pint. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would he have thought about Thwaites having their own Wainwright beer? To him? He would have been horrified. I've, I, I've always felt that that would have been the case because his father was an alcoholic, wasn't he? So he will That's have right. been—he will always have been reticent about alcohol. This whole business of um, Wainwright's fame—it's um, always struck me that so many people loved his work and would have loved to have met him. So, were there instances where you were with him, where? There was somebody who would, if only they did but know it, was sitting next to the great man. Well, a few weeks before, I'd been to the northeast, where you, you probably guessed I come from, um, and there was a fish and chip shop had reopened by the third generation of a family. And we'd had fish and chips, and they were very nice. And I mentioned this to A.W. And he listened, and his response was, when are we going? So this meant a 90-odd mile trip to a place called Carville in the outskirts of Durham City for fish and chips. We went there, had the fish and chips, sat around the, uh, the bottom of the street. He, he wouldn't go to my brother's house to have them. We ate them in the car at the bottom of the street and set off back for Kenwood. <laughs> As we neared Kirby Stephen, he said, do you fancy a ride along the Tan Hills? Yeah, okay, we can do. So we turned off, 
went to Town Hills, and um, when we got inside, A.W. wanted, as he called it, the little boy's room. So I pointed him in the direction of the gents, and got two drinks and sat down. And next to us, there was a chap reading his copy of the Pennine Way, rucksack between his feet on the floor. So I sat and left the gap next to this chap, thinking, wait till he sees who's sitting next to him. A.W. <laughs> <laughs> come out and I brought him along to the seat and he sat there and the chops got his head in the book, having his drink, eating his sandwiches, didn't know who was sitting next to him. And uh, I leaned over and said quietly to A.W., the chap next to you is reading his copy of the Pennine Way. Why don't you have a word with him? <laughs> we were out of there in no time. <laughs> 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 no, if that chap had only known he was sitting yeah. next, he would have done that walk in half the time. Yeah. But also Wainwright did have a kind side as well. Yeah. A telephone call from a lady in the south of England um, was any chance of getting a Wainwright book signed. It didn't matter which book, so long as it was a Wainwright book and A.W. had signed it. I said, well, give me your name and telephone number. If I manage it, I'll ring you back. I can't remember just offhand which book it was, but I did manage to persuade them to sign one. And... Um, I was able to ring the lady back and say, right, I've got a book, but I'm reluctant to put it in the post. Uh, oh, no, no, we'll collect. Oh, Kent. They were from Kent. They would come up and collect and made arrangements for which day they would come up to make sure I was going to be there. And when they came into the office, she'd ordered the book. Her husband was with her. I passed the book to her and um, she looked at it and passed it to her husband and he said the signature. And I hope he's not listening to this, but a, t a tear came to his eyes. Um, and he looked at the book and they sat talking half an hour or so and off they went. And then some time later, I don't think it was more than six months later, a telephone call, no it wasn't, it was a letter, and that his wife had died. And it seems that she'd known she only had so long to live when she asked for the signature. And that was the reason for the tear. But anyway, between us, we sent some money for some flowers for the grave and we got a letter back to say they bought an ornament for the grave. This Wainwright touch, it meant so much to people. Mm. She never indicated at all that she was dying. Mm. She was just so pleased to get Wainwright's signature for her husband. Now, back in 2012, uh, you actually put a book together which tells you all, all the stories of your uh, experiences with Wainwright over, over the time you worked with him, uh, and the book was called Behind the Scenes with Wainwright. What prompted you to, to uh, write this book? Well, purely at the request of the Wainwright Society. A.W. had made it absolutely clear to me. Oh, it was when the developers of the shopping precinct in Strickland Gate wanted to have a full-size, well, wanted to provide and pay for a full-size statue, bronze statue of A.W. in the foyer. He didn't want to know. I managed to persuade him at least to come down and have a look. He thought it was something for the vandals to desecrate, but I managed to persuade him and I brought him down to our, the Gazette car park. We wandered down the main street and he had a look. But no, he, he wasn't interested. 
took him back home and it was late afternoon, he made a cup of tea and we sat there and um, I said, well, I must get back to the office. Is that your final answer? Would you not agree to this? And as usual, when he had something important to say, he would lean forward and point in his pipe. He said, I don't want anybody writing about me after my death. I don't want my name connected with any commercial proposition and I don't want any memorial of any kind. Does that answer the question? Well, in fact, one chap, a book rep from Stockton on Tees, had said, make notes of your meetings, where you do, why you go to certain places and what happened. And he said, one day, do a book on Wainwright, and I'd started this, but I just didn't have the time to do it. Um, and I, I was wanting information to be kept because I'd said to AW several times when trying to persuade them to do television, your name will go down in history. You'll be mentioned in the same articles and conversations as people like Wordsworth and the, the other Lakeland greats. But he turned round and, and looked at Mrs. Wainwright as much as to say, what's he talking about? Mm. It's worth people knowing that you have this book available. I hope he, I hope he realises that I didn't make any money out of it. Royalty is a donated to cancer charity. And he valued the fact that you were a Kendall person and wanted to keep the quality of his work sacrosanct to Kendall, as it were, in the area. I, I think he appreciated it. Yeah, that was important to him. Mm. Um, he wasn't very happy for a while when I said I was going to retire at 60 and um, I'd approached one or two other people about taking the job over but they weren't interested um, so we were going to transfer the copyright to Michael Joseph in London mm. who had already done some of his colour books and, and were quite keen to do the guidebooks but he wrote to the managing director of the Westminster Gazette's parent company, Pearsons, and complained that he wanted the books to be kept in Kendall to him, provide jobs in Kendall. And he was promised, in fact, that they would be returned to Kendall, but he died just mm. a few months later. Well, about, I think it was about a year later. Mm. What would you say Wainwright's legacy was, now he's gone? I think it's been the biggest asset to the Lake District, to the Lake District businesses. Um, of, uh, what, for the past 50 years? Mm -hmm. Can you think of anyone else who's brought as many people to the Lake District as Certainly AW not. has? Certainly not. And when you think about hotel accommodation, bed and breakfast houses, meals in restaurants, Things like this, apart from book publishers, <laughs> um, I can't think of anyone who's brought so many people to the Lake District. From all around the world? Well, yeah, when he died. Uh, the telephone never stopped ringing for three days. Wow. I spent three full days, the phone was ringing when I went in the office in the morning and I was still, I was still taking calls at five o'clock at night. And in fact, most of them were publications wanting information, and the one who spent the most time on the telephone was the Washington Post, and not Washington County, Durham, Washington, America. <laughs> they wanted every last detail. He is an enigma to many people, but he's somebody we were all grateful to have known. Oh, yes. That's yeah, right. I, I felt an honour that I, I yes. dealt with him. I, I, I'm the same, and... Uh, I think if we can carry his name forward gently, I think that's important to be able to do that. He did give a lot, and it's not just about fells, it's, it's about a love of our landscape and a love of skills. He was using 
talents that many people could adopt, but he just had a rare gathering of them. Another aspect of him that surprised me, he was a genius with a pen in his hand, but put a tool in his hand and he wouldn't have known what it was for. (laughs) (laughs) I can remember on one occasion knocking at the door and he opened the door and his first words were, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I said, what have you been up to? No reply, but he turned round, walked into the house, and I followed him through into the kitchen. And the stopper had come off the chain in the sink. And I went to the car and got a pair of pliers and went back and nipped up the split link. And I went back in the living room and said, right, I'll put it back on the top. He was amazed. (laughs) (laughs) It's something as simple as that. Already? Have you done it? <laughs> what was it? How did you do that? Amazing. By this time, me and all, he was about eight years old. Oh, gosh. And he didn't even know how to nip a split link up. See, I saw him only a few months before he died. I remember my, my wife and my two children called in at his house and my children read fan letters to him, would you believe? He was getting lots and lots of correspondence that mm-hmm. he wasn't able to read, but he, he, I think he must have read a lot down the years because fa- famously he did correspond, wrote, he wrote... Oh, he always replied to yeah. anyone, no matter what they wrote about, he would reply. I had lots of cards from him from Scotland. He's, he always sent cards to people uh, from his holidays. <laughs> I, I loved the touch when he first appeared on television. He was interviewed in the garden of his house and a big hole in the front of his jumper. Um, And a couple of weeks later, a parcel came for him. And he said, what's the parcel? I said, I don't know, but it's addressed to you. But it was still unopened when I left. But when I went up for the next visit, there he was. Look, look, (laughs) he says. Private as a little boy on a Sunday morning with a new jumper on. It turned <laughs> out the two elderly sisters from Gateshead had seen the interview, who were regular nieces and had to guess his size. There was a letter saying they hoped it fit, but he looked a big man, and he was pleased and he rode back and thanked them. Brilliant. And he was proud as punch. Amazing. And uh, was that his first television interview of ever? That's right. Amazing. Yeah. That, that's a, a holistic story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, that's fabulous, Andrew. Uh, we've been hugely honoured to speak to you. I think that's a, a fabulous uh, evocation of a great man. And he was an interesting character. Absolutely. Thank you very much for giving your time. Uh, no. And Bernice, thank you. No. Well, we made it back after that lovely trip down to see Andrew Nichol. Got on the bus, came back and uh, alighted uh, where we left off, um, back on the walk, which has been fabulous. And the, the day has sustained itself in beautiful weather it's been. And it's, uh, we've got early evening light. We've um, come across the valley, across the footbridge, over the trout back in the valley bottom and climbed up the hill and come to town end. Uh, the majestic yeoman's house owned by the National Trust. It's the largest of the string of farmsteads along the Springline settlement that is Trout Beck. A fascinating village in its own right and really worthwhile exploring. Uh, the houses date from the 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, they're largely made of slate, local slate, and whitewashed. Uh, with a distinctive round chimneys. And opposite the farmhouse itself, on the other side of the road, is a majestic bank barn. It doesn't have glass windows, it has timber strut windows. Anyway, we're now gonna follow on with the road and uh, head on to Wayne Lane. Well, we're part of the way down Wayne Lane and momentarily there's a gateway with a rather pleasing view looking south and I can see Orest Head above the woodland and to the right of that, of course, the great sweep of Windermere itself down towards Finsuade Heights and Gummer's Howe, the islands in the lake 
uh, by Bowness on Windermere. And in the field below me, there's a herd of cattle. Uh, I think they might be Angus cattle. And uh, it's a very charming moment, especially as the sun is behind me now. So I'm not glared by the sun, but everything is brilliant and sharp and the shadows of the trees pick out all the detail wonderfully. It's a quiet moment, a magpie just flown over. You can almost hear nothing. If I was to stop talking, you would hear nothing. lovely coming down Wayne Lane. I'm tempted to bring the camera out because I'm passing some old barns. There's one I can look over and see the floors missing. You can see the shipping uh, stalls underneath where the cattle would have been in the winter and the hay would have been above them. The roof's gone completely on that one. And on the opposite side, there's a Westmoreland Bank barn with a cartway, which reminds me, of course, Wayne Lane itself, which is largely a sunken way and Wayne, of course, means the wagon way. So it will be in the farm way from the lake side up to Troutbeck. So it will have been an important road in its time. And shortly we are coming down to Middle Rig Tarn. So that'll be an interesting little feature reflecting the sun of the late afternoon, early evening. It's a gorgeous day, absolutely wonderful. So evocative and redolent with the history of the area, these great slabs of slate that form the barn here, the bank barn on my left. It's fascinating, you come upon these things quite unexpected, the map doesn't really give you a clue. So you find these barns and the sunken way and, the, and you just come upon them on a calm evening like this and they just add such magic that just lifts the whole experience into another level. We're here in Brockhole, in the lower part next to the lake. There's some wood smoke rising out of the evening sunshine. And we passed the bus stop mark, we which did. was the end of our, our walk. Indeed. And, and, a, and a fine episode of Country Strike. It was absolute magic. But it's, again, people again we've met today. Uh, and with Chris Butterfield... That was very special, his knowledge of Alfred Wainwright. And then he introduced us to Andrew Nichol. Mm. There's so much that most people really didn't know about Wainwright. That he was, although he was hard to cope with in many ways, he was a warm man under it all. And he has an exceptional qualities. He could write his graphic work and his artistry. And, and as Chris said, we learned about the purple patch in the 1940s when he was exceptional before all the pictorial guys and so on. So we got a real feel for somebody whose impact on the Lake District will go on for decades long into the future. And by meeting Andrew Nichol, we met somebody who was very close to him, whose memories need to be carried forward. I loved the Tan Hill anecdote. Were there any standout anecdotes for you, Mark? <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. it people uh, loved his work. The lady who wanted a signed drawing. Mm. And uh, it was only later that they discovered that the tear in, in the husband's eye was because he knew that his wife's soon to die and, and it meant so much to them as a couple that Alfred Wainwright had contributed to their lives. He himself shunned publicity, and, and yet you can't measure the value of people like that. I always find it hard to reconcile Orist Head with the most important moment, really the most defining moment in Wainwright's young life, because it seems so utterly not him. It's busy, it's easy to get up to, it's next to a, quite a large town, all of those things. But 
today you saw the joy on people's faces and hearing from both Chris and Andrew the other side of Wayne that we don't hear so much you kind of think well maybe maybe it makes sense yeah it was a little bit like a bridge he travelled up from Blackburn he arrived there in the town and he went to Boris Ted and had a revelation so his eyes danced across the fells in the distance and he immediately embraced it all and it will have been a cosmopolitan a mass of human life when he was there as it was for us um, but he was able to transcend that and it gave him a new view on life. And I think it still does to people to this day. On the subject of the walk, I probably wasn't expecting too much from today. Oris Ted is Oris Ted. But I really liked the second part of it. The meadows and the pastoral lowlands uh, towards Troutbeck were, were quite a revelation. And, and actually the last bit that we've just had now down the sunken lane, wow, full of bank barns and tarns and only kind of five minutes from the road. It, is, it, it follows on from our previous one where we were on close to Hadrian's Wall on the farms there. You're close to a very rural environment and you need to be able to quietly take it in. You don't rush at it. And if you soak in the buildings, the walls, the, the growth on the walls, on the trees, and then the dancing of the light, it was just so full of energy and beauty and you have to walk it to know it you mentioned going slowly and going by foot and seeing things and i think that'd be a, a nice note really to to bring today's podcast to a close because that's what wainwright did didn't he he just noticed things this is it he was a keen eye and he loved detail and he held on to it he valued things and the next walk, which will be where we'll be going to Upper Borrowdale and Stonethwaite and looking at the trees and the craggy landscape, that will give us another detailed perspective on this magic that we call the English Lake District. <laughs>